Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I think today's Spirit in Action guest is going to get you thinking very deeply about the very roots in our culture of the environmental crisis, which is so obvious to so many of us. Howard Vogel spent some decades teaching law and ethics and related subjects at Hamline University in the Twin Cities, not only as a lawyer, but also with the degree that he obtained from the Twin Cities United Theological Seminary. And he continues to wrestle with a number of legal, ethical, and moral questions and issues, most notably our relationship to the land and to the earth, drawing insights and wisdom widely, including from native ways of thinking about ownership. Howard has deeply valuable lessons in a way forward for our planet. You'll have to listen online at nordenspiritradio.org for some really valuable bonus excerpts not included in this broadcast. Really, you won't want to miss them, but right now we go to the Twin Cities of Minnesota to speak with Howard Vogel. Howard, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Pleasure to be here. I understand you're an emeritus professor. How recently did you retire from Hamlin? I retired in January of 2012, but I still occasionally teach a course. And talk to me a little bit about your background in law, because, you know, I find it very interesting that you have your various degrees related to law, but then you go to United Theological Seminary in the Twin Cities. So there's something about law that I think maybe is not the traditional way that most people approach it. So talk about your history with law. How did you get into that? And how does this end up dovetailing with your theological degree? Well, I'm one of those people that is sometimes referred to as a child of the Warren Court. That's referring to Earl Warren, the Chief Justice. And the Warren Court is the court who in the 50s issued some remarkable decisions, most notable perhaps as Brown versus the Board, the school desegregation case. And I was just about ready to go into high school then, and what the court was doing was of great interest to those of us that were interested in government and politics. As a child of the Warren Court, quote-unquote, It means that I have the idea that some really positive things could be accomplished through the law working through the courts. I don't have that view as strongly today as I did then, but I think that was one of the reasons that I went to law school, because it seemed to me that if you worked in law, you could work for justice. That's pretty simple, but I think that was one of my main motivations. As I got into it, it was during the height of the Vietnam War, and I started participating as a member of a speaker's bureau that 
Minnesota clergy and laity concern had. So very often on Sundays I would be out at a local Christian church speaking about the Vietnam War from the standpoint of thinking about it as a problem that raised serious moral questions for our society. During that time, I got very interested in and was moved by the people who had been draft resistors, some of whom wound up spending time in prison because they were conscientious objectors, but they really didn't meet the legal requirements for securing conscientious objector status. And prior to that time, between college years and law school years, I had actually been in the military and was in the United States Navy and wound up being on a couple of high-level admiral staffs, first in the Mediterranean and then in the Middle East. And the time I spent in the Middle East in 66 and 67 was the time of the war between Israel and Egypt and other Arab countries. So I saw some of that firsthand, at least not being present in the middle of the violence going on, but I knew a lot about it because I was working for the on-site American commander who was floating around in the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf. I had a lot of questions in my mind as a graduate of an international relations program about what was really going on in the world. And I thought I was going to go into the diplomatic service. But after meeting people that were lifetime diplomatic corps employees of the United States and how disillusioned they were with their own work, I was kind of left with no place to go. So I went back home after I got out of the Navy and thought, well, I need to work for justice. And I thought back to my high school years on the Warren Court year, and so I went to law school. After I got out of law school and I was doing this Sunday morning speaking about the Vietnam War and running into these people who had been draft resistors or some conscientious objectors, I got really interested in the reasons that they had for objecting. And it seems to me that those were religious or spiritually based reasons. And my curiosity then took me, while I was just barely starting legal practice, it took me to a United Theological Seminary to study how people made these kinds of decisions from their religious background. I wound up over a number of years there pursuing a Master of Arts in Religious Studies and ultimately wrote a thesis on the way in which people reach these decisions to disobey the law as a matter of civil disobedience. So that led me to think through all that theologically. The interesting thing is that later when I went into teaching, after having done a lot of work in environmental law, is I came to understand that both the legal tradition and the various religious traditions share something in common. And what they share in common is that they involve people who gather with each other around a significant and important text for the purpose of engaging in conversation about the meaning of that text in their shared lives. So a religious community, for example, if it's Christian, would gather around the Christian Bible. If it's a Jewish, gather around the Hebrew Scriptures. If it's an Islamic community, would gather around the Quran and so forth. And people in the legal community gathered around the Constitution, for example, and other aspects of the law, the written documents. And in both cases, they would face the same challenge, and that is how to interpret the text for the application of what it seemed to be teaching in their own lives. So that's kind of where the two things come together for me. 
there's about 20 points along the way that I have questions about. Again, what yeah. we're going to what well, what we're going to head to is some views about the ecological crisis affecting the world and some of your work you mentioned was on environmental matters we'll come back to that as well one of the questions that comes to mind for me is how much you are concerned and how much the law is concerned about justice because i'm pretty sure there's a lot of lawyers out there who just say you know i can't be bothered with justice issues that's, you know, between us and God or some higher realm of thinking. It's above my pay grade. I'm concerned about the law. And here's what it says, what it doesn't say. It's not my prerogative to decide whether it's justice or not. It sounds to me, Howard, like you went into law because you wanted to pursue justice. Is that a typical feeling? Is that where you're still at? That certainly is the reason that I did. That's where I'm still at. My own experience teaching you know, thousands of students is that many of them come to law school because they have a deep desire to serve the common good. As they get socialized into the knowledge and patterns of behavior that lawyers take on necessarily to function in the legal system, they oftentimes find it more and more difficult to do that. So I would say that this is the reason why there is, for many lawyers, a great sadness in the work that they do, because it's oftentimes the case for many lawyers that they feel that they're really not doing much more than operating as a hired gun with their very costly skills. I mean, costly skills, what I mean by that is with their skills, which they have secured at a great cost to themselves, being sold to the highest bidder which means that they become nothing more than an instrument of their client's will. Now, it has to be said that one of the great values, one of the great benefits of the common law legal system, and the Constitution embraces this idea as well, is that every person is entitled to their day in court. So one of the promises that the legal system has in a society that's ruled by law, that is governed under the rule of law, is that you will receive individualized justice. You are permitted to have your say in court and your case will be considered on its own merits so that you will be dealt with directly. And that's a very positive thing. But on the other hand, the access to that system is not necessarily available to all on an equal basis, which can be very problematic. You also said, Howard, that when you went to United Theological Seminary, part of what led you there, and these are my words, correct me if I'm wrong, what led you there was trying to look at the roots of how people make decisions about conscience objection. In other words, how people make their decisions with respect to justice and the law. I, I think that's part of my question. So were you raised with a tradition where you had your own thinking about that? Is this something that was new for you looking at this? Where did that come from? You're right about your characterization of me there. And where I think that came from is that as a child, I went to a parochial grade school, a very conservative German Lutheran grade school. Wouldn't be, would be something that would be familiar to many of your listeners, I would suspect, in Wisconsin. I was raised in southern Minnesota. One of the things that was clear to me is that on some matters, we had obligations to act in life in a way that was congruent with however we understood the will of God. So that raises the question of any time you're facing a decision, 
whether or not this is something that's just that you're participating in or considering pursuing because of your own will or whether it's something that comports with, I suppose, what we could call the higher law of God. That's probably where my concern about the ethics of governmental decision-making began, and of course it spread out to thinking about the law in particular. So that's the origin of it, which means that when I was at the seminary doing my graduate work at the same time that I was practicing law, I not only was brought up short in having to rethink my understanding of the law, but I also was engaged in rethinking my whole religious experience and spiritual practice and so forth. So both of them were subject to the same kind of questioning. Tell me a little bit about the kind of court cases that you participated in as a lawyer. The cases that I took for the few years that I practiced by myself before I went into teaching involved, for example, the big pollution case up on Lake Superior. I wasn't the chief lawyer on that. The states of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and the United States government sued two steel companies, Armco and Republic Steel, about the pollution that was the result of iron ore tailings being discharged into the lake at Silver Bay, Minnesota, on the North Shore. I represented the environmental interveners, so I was involved in that case, but the other, the governmental parties were the chief litigants in that. But that was one that I was involved in. That went on for eight or nine months. I also got involved in some cases under the National Environmental Policy Act, which was passed by Congress near the time of the Earth Day. We didn't think it amounted to much because it seemed like it only said that government had to consider a few things concerning the environment before they went forward with their decisions. And then a decision was issued by a circuit court of appeals on the East Coast that said, well, these requirements really mean something. There are teeth in this National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, usually just referred to as NEPA, and you have to prepare an environmental impact statement in which you consider the actual effects and all the alternatives there might be to mitigate the effects on the environment. And with that, you could get governmental decision makers to look more closely at the results. So I was involved in a number of those kinds of cases, including one that involved the licensing of a nuclear power plant. I was particularly concerned about nuclear power after I read some of the studies that demonstrated that low-level exposure to radiation could be um, a serious problem for infant mortality. Difficult to see that until you do a careful statistical analysis. And having grown up in the time in which we were worried about atomic bombs going off and, and doing the old duck and cover routine in grade school, I'd always been wary of nuclear weapons, but now I came to see nuclear power as having another very sobering side to it, which is the introduction of low-level amounts into the environment as being a possible danger. So that led me into these nuclear power cases. Those were the kinds of things that I got involved in, as well as some things that just involved discharges into flowing streams, for example. Well, we're going to dive into that pretty deeply right now, folks. But first, I want to remind you, you're listening to Spirit in Action. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org. That's like organic instead of commercial. Northernspiritradio.org. On that site, you'll find 10 years of our programs for your free listening and download. We're also syndicated across the country. Right now, I think it stands at 23 stations are carrying our programs from coast to coast. 
Also on our site, you can find a place to post comments. You can see other people's comments. Please add yours when you come. We value two-way communication. There's also a place to support Northern Spirit Radio. This is full-time work, and it's by your support that it's paid for. But even more important than supporting Northern Spirit Radio, I ask that you support your local community radio station. Community radios offer you a slice of news and of music that you get nowhere else on the American airwaves. We need open portals of information, and community radio stations do that. So please, start by supporting them before you go elsewhere. Again, our guest today is Howard Vogel. He's an emeritus professor from Hamline University in the Twin Cities, Minnesota. In addition to his JD from the University of Minnesota, he's got his master's from United Theological Seminary in the Twin Cities. So he brings a perspective of theology, of ethics, of morals to the area of law that isn't always the focus that a lawyer would bring. So I especially appreciate that about you, Howard. And of course, I really liked the presentation that you gave at Northern Yearly Meeting this past session, the end of May, and that's what occasioned my bringing you on the program. Let's get into that right now. You advanced some ideas that I think are probably seen as revolutionary by the current point of view of many people in this country has to do with ownership and how we connect with the land. Why don't you start us off on the ideas that lead you up to that important concept about how we deal with the land? I'd be happy to do that. Land is really important to human beings. We walk on the land. We really exist in an ocean of air and we swim in that ocean, so to speak, as we walk across the land. We're not water creatures. We're air creatures who are landed. I think that's why land is really, really important to people. There's a certain way in which if you have a place that you're able to call home, let's say, there's a sense of security that comes over a person. It's a very deep and understandable thing. I may not have talked about this very much in that presentation you were talking about, but I think we have to acknowledge that this desire to acquire land that humans have is rooted in a need for a certain amount of security that is tied to the land. What it can lead us to is to become owners of ever-increasingly large tracts of land that lead us to come to understand that the land is some kind of an object that exists for our benefit, that we can do things to it, and we can lose sight of the way in which we are really deeply interconnected and interdependent on the land. The land is dependent upon us, and we're dependent upon the land. And if we're not careful about that, we can undermine the ability of the land to support us in the way that we need support. So what's of concern to me is the way in which this idea of owning the planet has become a dominant principle, it seems to me, or dominant idea inside of the evolution of property law. One of the chief characteristics of property law is the idea of possession. And this is an idea that goes way back before the origin of the common law in England to ancient Roman times and perhaps even further. And I think that idea of possession is in somehow rooted in human need for security on the land. But the idea of possession has come to be understood, at least, as being able to secure the land in a way for the benefit of myself to exclude you and all others. Let me illustrate how deeply this is embedded in our psyche. 
if I can just take you back to your childhood, you must have had the experience of being out on the playground when someone finds something, perhaps it's a coin or a shiny marble or what have you, and the person grabs it and says, it's mine, and somebody else contests that. So, oh no, I saw it first. But the person holding this little found object in their hand says, finders keepers, losers weepers. That's actually a core principle of what's called the law of finders. If you find things, you can keep them. Let's suppose that an argument breaks out between those children. And the children, the child who is owning it says, possession is nine points of the law. That common phrase expresses this idea of possession. So these are things that already children pick up from the culture into which they are born. It's part of our background, and it reflects that deep importance of the idea of possession. But that's not the only idea that's associated with land. Land and property law is very malleable, which means that you can't just do anything on your land. If you create a public nuisance on your land, your neighbors can get together and get the benefit of the law to stop you from doing that because you can't wreck the neighborhood for people. Now, that doesn't happen very often, but it's an example of the fact that even land which is possessed by you or by me to the exclusion of all others is subject to regulation so that it doesn't being used to injure other people. Now, the question that we face today in the 21st century with the looming ecological crisis is whether we can drive that notion deeper so that we can ask people that are landowners to act as stewards of that land so that the basic support for life that land provides can be maintained. It's not just a matter of you know, not burning tires on the back lot that you own, which messes up the sky and fouls the odor in the neighborhood. But it's about people appropriating the land in a way that undermines its ability to provide the kind of support that we need since we are deeply related to the land. Those are the kinds of things that are of concern to me at this point. We're really facing a cultural problem. I don't think we can go to court or the legislature very easily and change this. But the idea that the land that we own can be used in whichever way we want is one that has gotten us into very, very great troubles, especially with the rise of the industrial age in the last 150 years or so. One of the things that strikes me today is that everybody now says, oh, of course we're interconnected. And it's because of the spread of the Internet. Back when the first Earth Day came about in 1969, it was difficult to get people to even talk about the idea that we were interconnected. Today, it's difficult to get people to take seriously the depth at which we are interconnected. They simply say, oh, I know we're, un- we're connected. We're all connected by the Internet. We know what's going on 24-7 in every country in the world. So what's at stake today is coming to an understanding that the depth of our interconnection goes all the way down deep into the earth and deep into our bodies. I mean, each of us actually depends upon helpful bacteria that reside in our intestinal tract for our digestive process. We don't think about that, but it's a sign of our interdependence on other organisms. And it might be good for us to start to think of the entire planet as an organism itself, a planet that has its own life, which includes what we think of as biological life, but also the ongoing processes that you can see in the world of rocks and plant life beyond just animal life. It seems to me that one of the things you'd advocate for is good stewardship. 
I know that theologically there's some dissension between what the original idea of people are. Is is it all about people? Are we at the center of things? And in Genesis, is it about God giving us dominion or is it stewardship? I guess I think I know where you come down on that side of that. How does that reflect it in law? Well, that's a very good way to put it, because you can read that Genesis account in a number of different ways, and I'm not talking about taking the Genesis account and twisting it in a particular way. But if you go back in the ancient history of Israel, I think there's a much stronger understanding that the covenant which existed between Israel and God included the land. When you look at the way in which covenantal theology, so-called, is developed in the early years of the colonies in the United States, the land is just kind of dropped out of it so that covenantal theology becomes very important in terms of the relations between people. But in some way, the land gets dropped out of it. And the real question is, why was the land dropped out? Because that leads to an understanding of dominion as meaning we can do whatever we want. And once you have that cultural background, because law tends to reflect the culture, it's no surprise that you find it in law. It's also true, of course, that law can have an impact on culture. I mean, an interesting question will be, you and I won't be around for this, but in 100 years from now, someone will surely ask whether or not the decision of the South Carolina legislature to take down the Confederate battle flag had a measurable impact on race relations in the United States. And if race relations aren't better, the answer will be easy. Well, it didn't have any impact. But if race relations are better, the difficult question will be, in what way, if at all, did that contribute to it? When you think about the Brown versus the Board of Education decision, schools in some places are more racially segregated than they were at the time that Brown was decided. Well, then you could say that Brown has failed. On the other hand, it's held out certain promises that have been very helpful to try to deal with the racial conflict that's so ongoing in our society. So it's very difficult to always identify the way in which law might be a reflection of the culture as opposed to something that can be used to change that culture slightly in a new direction. And as a Warren Court kid, I think my early understanding was, well, the law is a prime way in which you can change the course of the culture. At this point in my life, I'm not sure that's true, so I'm much more interested in where people are coming from. I suppose you could say spiritually, religiously, theologically, however you want to put that, because the way in which people view the world will have a huge impact on the character of the culture of the society in which they live. Well, then let's discuss a particular element of that, which I think is particularly influential on the environmental well-being of our world, and that is the idea of communal rights versus individual rights. My sense from having read the Bible in those early chapters, it's really much more about an agreement between God, Yahweh, or whatever name was used back then, and the community of people. Even when it was given to Abraham, it's you and your descendants, it's, it's with a group of people as opposed to an individual, I've got a deed on this square piece of land. I'll give you the land of Canaan, for instance, and so on. So I think that's evolved considerably since those times in the Bible. And as much as people in the U.S. today, and particularly people who consider them Christian, think this is, these are God-given rights of individual ownership, how much does that tie in with the whole theological story of the many centuries in between? 
Well, the place that I would like to enter that discussion, that's a huge, huge discussion and a very important one, but the place I would like to enter that is the 15th century, which is not to cast off what happened before then, but what happened in the 15th century was very important because it's in the 15th century that Columbus set sail for ultimately what becomes known as America. Before that happened, there were people who thought that the earth was flat. And then along came Prince Henry, the navigator of Portugal, who sent ships out from Portugal and discovered that they could disappear over the horizon and still come back. The earth was not flat. And so then they start to discover other lands, the west coast of Africa, for example, opens up a whole new possibility. Once it was understood that there was a large world out there with many other lands, the Western European nations embarked on a race to secure access to those lands, many of times assuming there were vast riches to be found in those places. And so what became an issue was, how do you maintain peace between the European nations who are now setting out in the so-called age of discovery? How do you maintain peace between those nations as they start making claims to land based on this idea of possession? The Pope at that time issued a number of documents which divided the earth into two spheres. One sphere was open to the Portuguese and the other sphere was open to the Spanish. And if you look at where that line was drawn, you will see that there's one country in South America, I think it's Brazil, that in which Portuguese is the language and the other countries they speak Spanish. And that's because that country where Portuguese is spoken is on the Portuguese side of the line that the Pope drew. Now, why did the Pope draw that line? The Pope drew that line because it set aside parts of the earth for discovery by the Spanish and parts for discovery by the Portuguese. And then what happened is the first country that got to the land and maintained a claim upon it would be said to be the first quote-unquote discoverer of the land. Of course, we know now there was nothing to be discovered there. People had lived there for eons before the Europeans ever came. And eventually, this whole doctrine of discovery was a doctrine that was worked out in Europe under a theological sanction to avoid conflict between Western European nations in particular, who are now sending ships all over the place trying to make claims on land. And eventually it came into Britain, and you have the voyages, for example, of John Cabot up into Canada, who made claims up there for the British crown, so on and so forth. That's a highly oversimplified version of it. But the doctrine of discovery comes out of the 15th century, rooted in this theological sanction by the Pope that the countries who first discover land then are entitled to make a claim. Now, how did they make that claim, given the fact that they encountered other people in those lands? A document was read to the indigenous people that were encountered in those lands, called the Requiremiento, which basically said that People had come to provide government for these people and that they now had to pledge their allegiance to these foreign powers. And if they didn't do that, their lands could be taken from them and they could be killed. So with that, you have the marriage of the cross, for example, in the Christian world, and the sword, which took place back in the 4th century, time of Constantine, now being used to subjugate other lands and the peoples that were found there. That's 
kind of shorthand version of where the law and the story of Christendom work together to open up the land to discovery and conquest. At the presentation that you gave at Northern Yearly Meeting Session, you mentioned something about when you are seeing if a deed is clear. There's right. something tracing it back. Could you talk about what that what it traces back to? Sure. If you're buying a piece of land, any place in the United States, a lawyer will do a title search. And what that means is they get a document that many people probably have seen. They may have it in their safe deposit box or someplace in a safe place at home called an abstract of title to the house that they own. And the abstract of title is a record of all the transfers of deeds relating to that property over the years. And what you need to do before you buy a piece of property, it needs to be checked to make sure that there are no previous claims on that because the land might have been pledged for a loan that was made. That's what happens when you get a mortgage, for example. There may be some other form of encumbrance on the land, a lien of some sort because someone has done some work for you and you didn't or done some work for somebody in the past who was not paid and then the creditor somehow got a lien on the land. You look for what are called clouds on title. You want to make sure that when you go to the closing for the purchase of your house that you get clear title. As you check back through all these previous documents and deeds, the very first one, the very first one on that abstract will be something that's either called a grant or a patent. And it is given by the United States to the very first owner. The question arises, how did the United States have the authority to grant either to sell or to distribute this land to begin with? And the United States' ability to do that is grounded on the doctrine of discovery. Why is that so? It's because once the Revolutionary War was ended and the various peace treaties were done that led to the succession of the Americans to the British claims and ultimately to the French claims and later on through the Louisiana Purchase to the Spanish claims. What it means is the United States becomes the successor in relationship to the land to all of those European powers so that the United States eventually supplants Spain, France, England, and the Netherlands and becomes the source of your title to your property. So even though the United States didn't come to that land as a discoverer, it becomes the successor to it. That's the way it works in the real estate world, which means anyone that owns a piece of property in the United States owns that property because the ownership and the idea of possession is rooted in this 15th century doctrine of discovery idea. And you can see it in American law if you read decisions, especially by the Supreme Court. And how does that compare to the native way of seeing it? I think you spoke of Dakota ways right. of thinking of this particular. Well, I'm speaking to you from St. Paul, Minnesota, not far from the confluence of the so-called Minnesota River and the Mississippi River. And down at that site, which is called Bedote in Dakota, is the site of one of the stories of origin of the Dakota people. That's the place from which they emerged, at least one of the places they emerged. So this land here that I'm speaking from has from time immemorial been the ancestral homeland of the Dakota people. There are some Ojibwe or Anishinaabe, what used to be called Chippewa people living in the northern half of Minnesota, but they're relatively recent newcomers. The Dakota people would call all of Minnesota and beyond its borders as part of their ancestral homeland. 
the way in which the Dakota people have understood this, and this is not my opinion, this is things I have heard from Dakota people speaking about it, they speak of this land as a relative. It's why they sometimes refer to the land in terms of it being the grandmother. The Dakota word for the earth and for mother is the same word. It's the word ina. So the connection that Dakota people have with Minnesota, which is a Dakota word, is one that is of great intimacy and close connection because they are relatives. Very intimate connection, which means there's a fierce loyalty to the land on the part of the Dakota, even though they don't take the view that they can own parts of it to the exclusion of all others, that my ancestors who came here in the middle of the 19th century would have been heirs to. So what you have then, when you have the encounter between the Dakota people, for example, in Minnesota, with the U.S. governmental representatives in the middle of the 19th century at the treaty table, you have two different understandings of the land that are face-to-face at the treaty table, and these understandings are vastly different. They both involve an intimate connection with the land, but the nature of that connection is quite different because on the immigrant settler side, the United States side of the treaty table, there is the idea that this is land which can be purchased with the understanding by the people on the United States side that all we need to do is get the Dakota people to agree to sell it to us for a price, and then we can possess it to the exclusion of all others. And the people who then set up farms on that can often be heard to be speaking in very, very poetic terms about their understanding of the land, the back 40, and so forth. It's great intimate connection, but it's something that they're intimately connected to as their possession, whereas the Dakota people would have been related to it as a relative. I sometimes like to think of it in this way. The land for the Dakota possessed them. They had a duty and obligation to the land, and the land to the immigrant settlers was possessed by them. And it's no wonder then that there were many clashes between these two cultures over access to the land. But to make this even more problematic, aside from instances of fraud related to some of those treaty negotiations, what is of even deeper importance from my point of view is that the understanding that was brought to the treaty table by the American negotiators that somehow the land could be sold completely violates any sense on the part of at least the Dakota, and I think this is true of other indigenous peoples, that the land is something that could be sold. If you sold the land and you were Dakota, in effect you're selling grandmother. And to the extent that the understanding of sale of the land is like casting it away, it would be like throwing grandmother out of the house. So the negotiating positions were very different, and because of the extreme difficulties that the Dakota were facing by the middle of the 19th century, they were in a very, very weak position to engage in any kind of negotiation. For me, it raises the question of, was there really an agreement at the treaty table if you have these vastly two different understandings of the land? What really was exchanged between the two? The Dakota oftentimes shared occupation of land with other peoples. They had a vast kinship system It includes all kinds of people and the land, which suggests to me that the idea of selling land as opposed to personal property is something that just didn't fit into the Dakota worldview.
as opposed to the worldview, for example, of the immigrant settlers, many of whom, like my ancestors, came from a peasant background with tiny little pieces of land in Europe that now were able to secure land where they could work it through agriculture or other processes of extraction, mining, timber removal, and so forth, to provide for the benefit of their families. So from our point of view today, probably you and me as descendants of people from Europe having immigrated here, our concern as liberals, if that's where we are on the map, is likely to be in terms of climate change or environmental despoilation of various sorts. There's a lot of ways that can happen, or maybe destruction of species. We might have all of that as our point of view This idea of the land as owning us, as you relate to the Dakota point of view, is there any leverage in the legal system, constitutional or otherwise, for that point of view to enter in? You did mention during your talk back in end of May about the repudiation of the doctrine of discovery. Is there any legal fulcrum for this to edge its way into our way of thinking? Well, that's a very interesting question, and I have to say it's a typical American question, and I don't mean that in a way that's critical of you, but it's a typical American question because we've hooked our future in many ways to what we can do through the use of law. And what I like to say to people in response to this question is that I don't think it's helpful for us to wait for the courts to solve these problems. I don't mean to be dodging the question whether there's any leverage. What is true is there is within the common law system a notion of a public trust doctrine that is not very well developed. Some lawyers are now trying to press this in courts in which they are arguing that the integrity of land has to be maintained for future generations. It's very hard to make a claim in a courtroom on behalf of an unborn future generation given the promise of individualized justice to people who are living now, but that's being attempted. The place that I think we need to give our attention to is to what we might do as citizens in a um, political society that has a vibrant legislature or potentially can have a vibrant legislature because there are all kinds of things that we could do to recognize our interconnectedness at this deep level with the land through legislation. The other thing I want to say is that oftentimes when I talk about this in terms of rights and The distinction you make between individual rights and communal rights is an important one. Under the American Constitution, rights are basically understood in highly individualistic terms. And one of the problems that results in is that it's very difficult to take into account the earth. So to talk about earth's rights, if one wants to do that, is extremely difficult, and I don't think there's much leverage for that. On the other hand, it's possible to talk about how we're going to relate to the land as a society by setting up things that would regulate the uses of that land through our legislative bodies. And one final point, perhaps, is this is really not a liberal or a conservative issue. From one point of view, a conservative viewpoint would want to try to protect the land so that it's available for our support. From another point of view, a conservative point of view, it might be the land is available for me to do whatever I want with it. So the conservatives could be on both sides of this. Liberals, on the other hand, could also be on both sides of this, depending upon how they understand the liberal tradition. To the extent that the liberal tradition in American politics is focused on the sanctity of the individual to the exclusion of all others, it can easily leave the land out of it. 
so that liberalism itself can be the source of promoting what I would call a kind of extreme individualism. I think in the turn toward the protection of individuals that comes out of classical liberalism is an important development in our past. But to promote that in an extreme way to the exclusion of the understanding that we're dependent upon the community of life will do nothing to protect individual liberty in the long run and ultimately undermine it. So I'm not talking about submerging the individual in the community. Instead, I'm talking about something which is not original to me, but some theologians are beginning to speak about that, and that is to understand who we are as individuals, as persons in community. I put hyphens between those three words, persons, hyphen, in, hyphen, community. And the individual has no experience and no really true understanding of him or herself unless it's understood as a person in community. That's ultimately where we, our identity is given to us. It's where we form it and change it as we interact with the communities in which we live. The idea of the individual standing free from everyone else, that kind of radical libertarian view, which you can find on both the left and the right at, at its extremes, seems to me to deny the ecological web of life that we are in. The interdependency that we are involved with in this planet is really a form of entanglement. And that term, which others are beginning to use, I think expresses the extent to which we are bound up in this with each other, and we will only flourish individually when we flourish together. There's so much we can go into, Howard. I do want to grab just a couple more threads to finish up here. One is about this repudiation of the doctrine of discovery. The way that I understand you to have talked about it before is if we repudiate the doctrine of discovery, all land ownership in this country is in some ways up in the air. Is that true? No, I don't think the land ownership is up in the air. What I do think is important about the possibility and the idea of repudiating the doctrine of discovery at least for people who take the Christian tradition seriously, the repudiation of the doctrine of discovery is a way to reclaim the ancient heritage of the teachings of Jesus. What I mean by that is that it seems to me that the teachings of Jesus have been hijacked by the state in the doctrine of discovery. And so if one is to be faithful to the teachings of Jesus, then the doctrine of discovery is something that one ought to repudiate. But repudiating it is not going to disrupt titles to land, and it isn't going to solve the ecological crises that we face as a result of the way in which we relate to the land, but it can be an important step toward coming to a new understanding and awareness of the deep way in which we are embedded with, entangled with the entire planet. The challenge is for us to become collaborators in the renewing process of the earth. The rights of ownership that we talk about, that we dole out as part of a country, at one point there were limitations on the rights of property of people with kind of an immediate African heritage. So black people were property and therefore their property rights were curtailed. I guess it was also true for women in general. My question is, we've certainly enlarged those senses of the rights that individuals have. Uh, We extended them to people with darker skin and people who have just no Y chromosome. 
is there any sense in which there are rights that exist beyond humans? That is to say, are there rights that belong to your cat, your dog, uh, the insects that are on the land, the oak trees out there? Is there any sense in our law, our legal system, that there are rights that are not just human rights? Well, I think it's very difficult to make that case. I know there are serious discussions by some philosophers about animal rights, for example. But that hasn't been embraced by the court system. Rights are usually understood as something that humans hold, which is why I think the whole notion of rights language is problematic. But we don't necessarily have to use rights language or humans' rights language to talk about the importance of taking trees into account. One of the difficulties, of course, is if you're concerned about the well-being of the plant world, for example, is who is going to speak on behalf of them if you go to court, for example. What I think is much more fruitful than trying to expand rights in this particular way is to think about how we expand our understanding of responsibility in which we live. It certainly is true that, at least in terms of who now qualifies for citizenship and participation as a human being in American political society, has been constantly expanded over the years to include people who don't own property, to include people of color, and to include women. That's been an expansion of the franchise that's been going on for a long time. The extent to which it's made meaningful, of course, is still problematic when you look at some of the restrictions on voting that exist here and there, the difficulties in voting. But to use rights to try to embrace the larger planet, although I understand where the impetus of that comes from, it seems to me that the crisis we face is so immediate that we need to think about other ways in which we relate to the land itself, to the planet itself without waiting for the courts or the legislature to adopt the idea of rights. That's why I keep coming back to the point that we are facing a cultural crisis here that involves the way in which we view the world. Another thing that I'd like to point out, you've referred a number of times to basically Christian point of view, Christian ethics, Christian morals. Would this be different from an Islamic point of view, Islamic law in terms of ownership of land or, or the rights there connected? Well, I can't speak about that, but I think that's an excellent idea for you to explore that with someone trained in the Islamic tradition, especially the legal tradition, which is fascinating and complex. So I can't really speak about that. But there are people, I'm sure, who are not Christians. They could be secular. They could be radical secularists. They could be non-theists. They could be atheists. They could be agnostics. They could be Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, Muslims who are every much affected by this because of the fact that they're caught up in the way in which land is thought of and titles are transferred, which is in part the legacy of the doctrine of discovery that emerged out of what we would call Christendom in the 15th century. And then eventually gets taken up in the United States by the Supreme Court as a doctrine that's not necessarily theologically grounded, but it gets converted into a kind of non-religious secular doctrine. So the presence and power of the doctrine of discovery today in American law has been shorn of its religious underpinnings to begin with. So the repudiation of it, say by people who are standing in the Christian tradition, would be one way for people who claim that tradition to come to a deeper understanding of that tradition and how it is rooted in the teachings of Jesus. 
What about the recent encyclical by the Pope about climate change? Well, it's an extremely important document. I've read it, and one must remember that the Pope himself was trained as a scientist. I think he was trained as a chemist. So he starts out the encyclical talking about what science has taught us about the earth. And then he draws on his own theological heritage in the Christian tradition as it's understood in Roman Catholicism. And he calls for an integral ecology, which combines three things. The understanding of what we now know about ecology, connected to economy, connected to equality. Those three things is what makes up the idea of integral ecology. You have to see the interconnection between the well-being of the earth and the economic system that we employ to run our lives and the question of whether or not all of that is being mediated through a commitment to equality, which is where the Pope's concern about the poor comes into this. It's really quite a remarkable document. Whether it's going to have much impact inside the Roman Catholic Church, inside the larger Christian world or or beyond is a really good question, but it certainly does open up the door for a very, very interesting and fruitful conversation. I hope it's at least as fruitful as my conversation with you, Howard. Folks, we've been speaking with Howard Vogel. He's Emeritus Professor from Hamline University in the Twin Cities. He also has a master's degree from United Theological Seminary in the Twin Cities. He's taught law for so many years at Hamline, and so his words here today reflect many points of view both connections with native law and the law that we have as our system. I find myself enriched by listening to you, Howard, both with your careful look at the facts and the the legal structures that were there, but also the moral structures to which we all need to be building our lives. So I really appreciate you taking the time thinking and sharing that with the rest of us, with your students and with the rest of us. Thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. My pleasure. And we've been speaking again with Howard Vogel. You'll find a link to Howard via the NordenSpiritRadio.org website. And there are some really choice bonus excerpts on that site that we couldn't fit into this broadcast. Appreciation also to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on this and other Norden Spirit Radio shows. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.